Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 128th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. You can call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like our graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Constantine Kissin. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind those who are joining us, whether on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions. So go ahead and get started. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Konstantin Kissin is a Russian-British comedian uh, and political commentator who hosts Triggernometry, a YouTube channel and podcast devoted to free speech. He is the best-selling author of An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Uh, he made international headlines for refusing to sign a behavioral agreement form banning certain kinds of jokes in order to speak on a university campus and we are delighted to have him join us today. Constantine, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jag. I appreciate it. So we always like to start with a bit about our guests' origin stories and yours, which you share in your book, was particularly fascinating. Um, you were born in Soviet Russia and as I understand, members of your family tree were actually jailed as political dissidents. So tell us a bit about your family history and how your experience under communism uh, may have shaped your political perspective today. Well, the short story of it is, as you say, I was born in the early 80s in the Soviet Union. And uh, yes, uh, members of my family uh, experienced various uh, sort of punishments of ranging from being sent to the gulag um, to uh, being fired from work, etc. And, and some of it was for political uh, dissidents, people who had the wrong view, the wrong opinion, which is why free speech is so important to me. But a lot of it was... Um, just you know this radical reordering of society uh that uh you you're interesting before we started you asked me if i'd read ayn rand and one of the things i found very interesting uh as i explored her work in my sort of late teenage years and early 20s is her name obviously wasn't it's a pseudonym ayn rand her name was alice rosenbaum and she escaped uh russia because of um of the the communists that that were taking over so the very things that she was fleeing and her family were fleeing were the very things that my family uh experienced so um yeah my my i had uh, all sorts of different experiences in my family and of course uh people often say to me well look you were born in the 80s well what are you talking about how could this affect you well actually you know my my grandfather i i talk about this in the book as you know he uh was fired from work his wife was fired from work and his children my dad and my aunt uh were forced out of the university because he criticized the soviet invasion of afghanistan in the mid 80s uh so this repressive machine was was still around even when i was a 
little uh, little boy. Uh, but more importantly, you know, if you live in a family, uh, particularly a Russian one, where we like to go, go over the dark and terrible things that have happened to us or that we've experienced over and over in great detail. Uh, and, you know, you spend a lot of time living with, with grandparents as well um, in a way that most people in the West don't tend to do anymore. Um, then you kind of get it, you know, in few, your whole life is infused with all of these stories and they shape uh, your experiences and how you see the world. Um, and uh, th there's all sorts of other things that we, we could talk about in terms of that, that I don't even talk about in the book. But, you know, for example, my grandmother, uh, who who lives in Ukraine? She she was uh, lived in Soviet Ukraine all her life. She she experienced not only the people coming and sending uh, sending her family off to the gulags, confiscating her property, exiling them to the far east of Russia because they had a horse. That was their great crime. They they were gulags and wealthy, therefore. But but also the fascinating thing to me is, um, in many ways, that was not even the worst thing that they that she went through because she then lived through the german occupation of russia and ukraine uh, and of course now she's still alive my grandmother 94 years old living through yet another occupation of ukraine so it's it's a society that has seen a lot of turmoil and i think it shapes a lot of the way that people think i was born there part of part, partly culturally from there but also uh, happened to to come to the west when i was a teenager and so i kind of have a foot in both camps i can see things in both ways i often say that actually speaking a different language gives you a different personality like the person i am when i'm speaking russian is probably quite different mm -hmm. to the one i'm speaking english and that sort of access allows me to perhaps see where hopefully where the west is perhaps unaware of how it how things are everywhere else i talk as you know about this quite a lot in the book in the west we've we've got this very uh, self-focused view and we're because we're fortunate to be wealthy and safe and stable and, and whatever we don't have to think about how people live elsewhere and we therefore don't compare ourselves and therefore it's very tempting then to think oh actually what we have isn't great and and, and all of that on the other hand i can also see into the russian way of thinking and the russian culture and how that impacts the way people in russia think and some of the threats we in the west in the west face as a, a result uh so yeah that's that's my background i was trying to make it short but it ended up being <laughs> Long as always. No, I thought it was it was really fascinating. Uh, not just you know your experience of being sent here for boarding school and and not speaking uh, the the language and um, and then also there's the aspect where you know just as with the the Holocaust um, these experiences or just as with uh, the Cultural Revolution in China you know and the resulting scar literature, as they call it, that these experiences do get um, kind of passed down through the family and in mm -hmm. a way because it uh, not only changes those that have directly experienced it, but um, but it also shapes what they pass on to the next generation. And speaking of passing on to the next generation, you were a teacher at some point in your career. Uh, Was I? Well, I I thought you you taught in in school or no maybe was was that no, Francis? No, no, you're probably confusing me with Francis. Francis. Okay, okay. He bring, okay. I can't believe you've confused this jag, and this isn't. <laughs> I'm not attacking you. It's just he brings it up every bloody episode. So <laughs> I would have thought you would have got that, but don't worry about it. No, I wasn't the teacher. I have I I've run a few training courses, but I I was never a teacher. Yeah. So um, how did you get into stand up comedy? 
Uh, well, I I had a it, it's a long and boring story, but I had a friend who who was an agent for comedians, and he invited me uh, to a comedy festival that he founded in a very small city in in Ireland in Kilkenny called Cat Laughs. Um, and uh, I just looked at uh, the people uh, performing there and I, I, I'd been, a, I'd run my own translation business for 10 years before that. So I was getting to the point where I'd kind of like, I'd, um, as you can see from the gaming chair behind me, I used to, I, I, I used to enjoy computer games and I kind of think of life in that way. It's like, I'd got, I'd, I'd completed all the levels in my previous career and I think I was ready to, to do something else. And I saw the, uh, all these guys and it was mostly guys on stage, you know, just talking and making people laugh. And I, like a complete idiot, thought, oh, well, that, that looks like fun. Why don't I do this? Uh, not realizing that actually it sounds like they're just talking and being funny. It, it's, the you know, the, the ability to be that funny is the process of years and years and years of crafting what is material um, on stage. Uh, but I, I'm the sort of person that likes to challenge myself. I like to have a go at different things. Um, and so I started and... Um, you know, you start out doing the open mics and it's absolutely brutal. It's the, the hardest uh, gigs that you do. And eventually, you know, my, I was fortunate and my career went very well. I made it into the different clubs. I, I wrote on TV. I opened for my, some of my heroes on tour. I did my own show in 2019, uh, which was uh, about that contract that you mentioned earlier. So I was able to weave together the, the many interests that I have in it. Um, so, yeah, it, it was but it was always something, you know, I, I think stand up was never quite the right thing for me because I was always much more interested in satire than stand up and stand up is is a different genre stand up is much more simply about entertainment i was much more uh, again my russian influence coming into it because uh, in the soviet union jokes were always you know of course people just joke about in day to day life but humor was particularly uh, powerful in terms of uh, highlighting some of the things that were happening in society because they were almost the only way that you could being funny uh, jokes were, were a way of exposing the hypocrisies and the flaws in the system that people were living in and so russia actually has a and the former soviet countries there's a very rich culture of political satire as opposed to just humor for the sake of 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 pure entertainment and i was much more interested in the satirical side of things which is uh why i think over time i began to do other things and write and uh, and uh, do trigonometry and 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 do other things because uh, while i enjoyed stand up and there's you know as francis calls it the joke coke when you're on stage it's yeah. it's a very strong uh physical experience and and i always you know i always enjoy public speaking and stand up and all of those things they're fun um when the when the pandemic happened and i realized that i was spending you know half my day driving around to various obscure cities in the uk to do a 20 minute set in a comedy club and my wife hasn't seen me for a couple of years which is sort of how she was feeling um i decided to to take a break and we'll see how long that break from stand up uh lasts well, so we mentioned in the introduction this experience that you had uh, when you kind of garnered international attention for refusing to sign this university behavioral agreement form. So uh, what was it and what was your thinking and what was the reaction? 
I'll tell you the story very quickly because anyone who knows me has heard it a thousand times. But basically, I was asked to perform at a, a at a college in London, and they said they had a, they needed me to sign a behavioral agreement contract, which had a zero tolerance policy on get this racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism, and it also said that all jokes must be respectful and kind. Um, and I turned it down. I tweeted about it to what was like a thousand people at the time. I didn't have a particularly big following uh, back then. Um, we just started trigonometry a few months before. Um, and it went super viral around the world. It was the second most read story on the BBC News website on the day that the then prime minister was nearly removed from office by her own party so that's the equivalent of like i don't know right now joe biden gets nearly impeached by the democrats and the biggest story on fox news and cnn is comedian no one's ever heard of turns down unpaid charity gig yeah. from some college no one cares about it was kind of crazy um and um why do you think it, it struck such a chord well this is what i realized in that moment is prior to that i think i sort of I, I was tempted to think that the reason I care so much about people being free to make jokes and express themselves and say controversial things and even things that I strongly disagree with was because of my background and, you know, how I'm built and, and blah, blah, blah. But when I turned down that contract and it got that kind of reaction, I realized that actually a lot of people in our society feel and the statistics bear this out. And I talk I cite many of them in the book. Most people are actually most people even uh, people who we think of as like let's say that you know conventionally people would say the left has control over the media or more control over the media than the right let's say this is the argument some people would make even on the left people feel terrified of expressing themselves in public uh, and on the right and in the center it's, it's even more pronounced so i think the reason that it had the resonance that it had is that ordinary people feel in their own lives on a day-to-day -day basis almost like there are there are situations in which they've signed that contract mm -hmm. they've signed a contract not to offend people they've signed a contract which says that if you say the wrong thing or you don't quite use the 2022 word you use the 2020 word and you didn't get the update notification about that word no longer being allowed uh, if you didn't do that then you're going to be in trouble and you you risk uh, losing friends or losing your job or being hampered in your career or being kicked out of college or, or school or whatever it might be so i think the reason i had the resonance that it had is quite a lot of people don't like being told you can't say this, you can't do that. And um, I think they're also tired of these endlessly creeping moral standards where, you know, a person who's been in a coma for like five years would wake up now and be a massive bigger automatically just because they hadn't been around for five years of new cultural norms. You know what I mean? Um, so I think that that's, that's where a lot of the sentiment uh, that not just in reaction to that contract, but more broadly uh, in our society, a lot of it is coming from that place, I think. So, uh, as I mentioned, your book was uh, really beautifully written and also beautifully narrated. Um, uh, Constantine does the narration himself, which I know is actually not very easy. Um, I lost my voice. For, like, I, I talk for a living. So <laughs> I was absolutely like you. I thought I was just going to walk in there. I did my audiobook for two days and my throat was just gone. It's incredible. 
Yeah, it's it's not it's not easy, but I thought you did a great job. Um, what was the inspiration? Uh, I don't know if I had an inspiration. I I'd had the motivation, which I think is a very different thing. Because, uh, and and I reflect on it somewhat ironic that I wrote a book called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, which is largely about where I think the West is going wrong, and I'm not unaware of that 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 sort of contradiction to some extent. I just think that we've got to a point in society where someone had to say the things that I I, I was I'm saying in the book, and I didn't see anyone else saying them. And I also thought that I perhaps would have, and you know, one of the reasons I may be able to say it is the fact that I'm a first generation immigrant and, and whatever allows me to say things that maybe somebody born in the West and raised in the West, not only wouldn't necessarily be able to say because they don't have the outsider perspective, but even if they have the perspective, they're just not going to be allowed to say it. You know, publishing my book was not easy and I imagine that if my name was John Smith and I was white and born in, in the UK, it would have been a lot harder. Hmm. So I think that's why I felt oh, it wasn't so much inspiration. It was more I felt a duty, really, to say something. And this is perhaps where, again, coming back to a lot of my thinking and my approach to life, where it comes from is, you know, I come from a society where people spend most of their time not saying what they thought and pretending to be okay with things that they were not okay with. And I'm not okay with some of the things that are happening in our society. I, I don't think they're the right thing that, that should be happening. I'm in a fortunate position to be able to say something publicly. And I just felt it was necessary to do that. All right, I have more questions about the book, but we have questions coming in from the audience. So I want to right. dip into those. Candice Morena on Facebook says uh, she loves trigonometry. She says you recently discussed your views on how to promote free speech and police hate speech. Could you go into that in more detail? I'm trying to remember what Candice is referring to. Um, I, I'm not I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure I know I know what she's referring to. But um yeah maybe she'll maybe, come back maybe she'll come back because that, that's that's a bit of a vague one and i i, I wouldn't want to respond to uh, something something let's, else let's go to another facebook question from alex kirch asking in america you hear about people leaving new york or california is there some parallel of people fleeing areas in the uk people voting with their feet Oh, that's an interesting thing. This is uh, the big advantage of living in the United States. You have states. <laughs> it, well, it's big, but also it, the way that it's federalized, it means that states get to set their own rules, right? Uh, so if a part of if a part of the the United States wants to have certain rules when it comes to you know the usual hop, you know whatever issues you want to bring up that approach to COVID or guns or you know other stuff, um, you you get to choose. In the UK, the, there is very little of that. Sure, you can move to Scotland. Uh, the weather's. I lived in Scotland for many years. The Scottish people are nice, but the weather's terrible, and and their government is even worse than the one that we have. Uh, and that's really about it. You don't have a lot of choice. Um, so uh, there there is not a, a huge amount of that going on beyond the, you know the usual of people moving out of cities uh, into into the, the more rural areas for for all sorts of different reasons: crime, cost of housing, etc. Interesting. 
That would be but I'm plan. very sorry, Jag, sorry to interrupt. I am very jealous of the United States. I know, yeah. you know, we were uh, in Austin a, a few months ago doing the Joe Rogan show. And this is one of the things he was talking. We were talking about, you know, he moved from California to Austin and he's very happy at the stuff that he has and wasn't able to do in, in California. So I'm very, very jealous. Uh, and that's, again, one of the, you know, I'm such a big fan of America. People all over the world like to dump on America. And I think it's quite often jealousy because you guys do a lot of things very well. Uh, and this is definitely one of them. All right. Another question uh, from Facebook. What is the best way to deal with bad faith actors uh, is the way you and Francis, is it the way you and Francis respond to David Pakman? So I'm not sure who that is. Uh, so David Pakman is a progressive commentator who we had on the show. Um, we, and we were very happy to have him on and we had a very good faith conversation. Uh, at least we thought that uh, because afterwards what he did is he completely misrepresented uh, what had happened on his own channel. And it, it was it became very clear that he wasn't there to have a conversation. He was mm -hmm. there to win. Uh, and so we just put out a, a quick video just explaining what had happened, what he did, and that because we believe in conversation, we're going to continue to act in good faith, even when people like him come on the show and act in bad faith. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's it if you're in that sort of situation. But quite often, you, you don't need to interact with people who are acting in bad faith. You know, I increasingly find that on social media, I just go, okay, this person isn't isn't interested in having a, a conversation. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's not waste each other's time on it. So in your book, you talk about how political correctness uh, existed in the Soviet Union long before it existed here. Thought that was really interesting. Well, it didn't just exist in the Soviet Union. It was created in the Soviet Union. This is my point. This is the point I was really keen to make in the book is political correctness never had anything to do with politeness or protecting people's feelings or not offending vulnerable groups or whatever we now believe it has anything to do with. Political correctness was a way of saying to you what you're saying may be factually true, but it is wrong for you to say it. Hmm. It is wrong because it does not match the position of the party. It is wrong because it does not match the political line you're supposed to take, even if it is factually true. And and that's the reason I bring it up in the book, Jack, because I think we can all recognize that to some extent political correctness is used in that way in the West as well, where it's not so much about – you know, we satirists like me mock this. This is the idea of hate facts. There are certain facts that are true that you're not allowed to express because they're hateful. Well, if they're true, I think we should be able to express them. And that's why I think political correctness is important to highlight its origins, because it kind of tells you how it often gets used today in the West as well. All right. Um, you said at some point that you almost wanted to call the book an immigrant's love letter to the Anglosphere. Uh, and is that correct? Um, and I mm, think you yeah. talked about how the French had an obsession with reason and rationality versus the Anglosphere's sense of tradition as a source of knowledge. Mm. Uh, what Do you see the British and Scottish Enlightenments um, differing uh, with the French Enlightenment? 
Well, there was a huge difference. Uh, you know, if you look at the outcomes of the two revolutions, for example, they're very different. The, the United, the foundation of the United States, uh, based on the ideas of the English and Scottish Enlightenment, uh, creates a very different type of society to the one that's created in the French Revolution, uh, which attempts to remake society from the ground up. It thinks that everything, uh, human beings can be reimagined, that uh, human beings can be remade in the model of pure rationality and reason of course the end result is blood terror murder death and um it's a fundamental difference between uh, those uh, two approaches to to you know transformation of society and structuring society but it's also i think goes deeper than that i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of uh, thomas Sowell's work and this is one of the things he writes about in, in a couple of his books uh, the conflict a conflict the conflict of visions and the vision of the anointed um that's a great book Especially that the, latter one. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're both wonderful. And as you know, Jack, what he talks about is there are essentially two visions of humanity to summarize it for our viewers and listeners. Uh, one vision is what he calls the tragic vision, which is the idea that human beings are flawed, they're imperfect, they're fallible. Uh, and therefore, when we make society's rules, we have to make them taking into account that human beings are human beings, they're imperfect. And the other approach is what he calls the unconstrained vision. It's not constrained by the tragic reality of life. And it, it believes that everything can be made from uh, from the beginning. Uh, human beings can be remade. This was the foundation to a large extent of the Bolshevik revolution, which created the USSR in which I was born. The idea was very much the same. You know, communism is the idea that you can get people to abandon their natural attitudes and aspirations in favor of the greater good. And uh, maybe it would be a good idea. Uh, you know, for ants or mole rats who are who are biologically uh, shared DNA, but for human beings who are uh, intercompetitive and tribal in many ways, it just doesn't seem to be a good way of doing things. And, and I might even agree with the sort of uh, crazy progressives who think it would be better if human beings could be perfected uh, and we could make a better society and there would be no crime and no, you know, whatever, insert bad thing here, inequality. Uh, but uh, it turns out human beings aren't like that and attempts to make them like that, you know, result in millions of people being forcefully killed or deported or forced to, you know, to live a different life entirely it, it, that they're not happy with. And those regimes inevitably collapse. So uh, I think the when I when I the reason I, I'm not so desperate to offend all my French and German and whatever other friends, I, it's just people often sort of go, well, you say the West, what is the West? And I'm like, well, you know, this is the portion of the West that I quite like. And let's talk about that. All right. Amal Sura on Instagram um, is asking about the difference between allowing free speech and the choice to engage with people and their speech. Is it okay if there are people we don't want to talk to? Of course. Sounds like you just said you're kind of deciding no sanction of the victim on social media if somebody is just there to harass you or if they're being irrational, you prioritize. Right. And this is one of the reasons I am excited about Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter in particular, because I think what he's talked about is is kind of like the, the Google. When you search for things on Google, you get like no one goes to the third page of Google. So that's because all the results on the first page of Google are great. Right. So if you had a social media experience where you, people can say what they want, but you just don't get around to looking at it. 
if it's not stuff that's constructive or helpful if someone calling you a dick or whatever uh that to me is much better i don't want people to be shut down i don't want them not to have a twitter account because i don't like them I, i think that's kind of a high standard for 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 allowing someone to have a a voice i think people should have a voice but also yeah of course we don't have to listen to everything that somebody says um and so any tool that allows us to allow people to speak but also control what we choose to hear i think that's great and i think that's that would take us forward yeah and i think to extend that even further ayn rand talks about free speech does not extend to forcing you to subsidize another's platform right Mm. so that um someone doesn't have uh the right to come in and shout you know, obscenities on your lawn or in your driveway. Um, and I, I think that that is, is where we, we need to, to draw the line. Mm. Okay, this is a really interesting question on Facebook. Uh, James Kovich asking, do you think there is a correlation between those who promote cancel culture and personality disorders? Uh, it's a complicated one because I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't want to I don't want to give you my unqualified medical opinion, but yes, <laughs> uh, we, we've had uh, a couple of people talk about how much of it is driven by narcissism. Right. Uh, and I think that's an inevitable part of it. I also think that um, cancel culture is uh, representative of certain ways of doing things, which I wouldn't necessarily consider you know, personality disorders or or whatever, but it is, it's, uh, a lot of people have commented on it, that it is a quite, um, again, please hear me correctly. It's a stereotypically more female or more feminine way of doing things. Men tend to fight directly. So men are more likely to challenge and to fight even directly, which obviously is bad in certain situations, whereas women will tend to destroy your reputation. They'll talk behind your back sometimes and whatever. So I see it as also partly as a changing of, uh, you know, who has power in society in terms of the dynamic between the stereotypical two sexes. Ipswich29 on Instagram is asking about differences between the culture wars uh, U.S., U.K., a big talking point here in the United States with regards to wokeness. You've had experiences in Britain, but you have, you know, gone back and forth. You have a lot of guests from the United States on your show. Mm-hmm. So how is is uh, the situation worse or better in Great Britain? I think that the situation in Britain is quite a bit better, actually, in many ways. Um, there is much more pushback i think against uh some of the excesses of this way of doing things so uh you know we the for example in both countries you have clinics which are performing uh gender transition surgery on children which to me is just an abomination but in the uk the clinics that were doing that several of them have been shut down by the government pending investigations about children being encouraged down that path when they shouldn't have been so mm-hmm. it's terrible that it happened but at least you know we're we're taking some action in terms of making sure that you know people are getting the help they need without dragging other people into that conversation who really don't belong there and i see that as you know one of the worst consequences of this culture actually you know you know pink heads idiots on student college campuses bother me less than children being encouraged to have 
permanently life-altering medical procedures. So on that front, we're doing better. I think uh, we are uh, also less crazy in in the way that we talk about these things. With there's less hyperventilations because America is a very uh, it's a high energy culture. You know, when you fight, you fight hard. When you do things, you do them full full on. In the UK, it's kind of like, eh, you know, we don't take things quite as, as seriously. And that has many disadvantages. But one of them is that when we do have these polarized situations in both our societies, perhaps we don't quite do that side of it as harsh, harshly as, as you guys do in the US. Our media is probably less polarized as well. Um, we still have a BBC. I mean, people argue over its impartiality, of course, but it is a somewhat independent source of media. And generally, I just think, and also most importantly, in terms of this conversation, at least, is we don't have guns. So even if we do have a falling out, it's not going to be quite as bad. Uh, so on the, for those reasons, I'm I'm quite optimistic, actually, about the situation in the UK. But I think I've seen reports of regular people who say something uh, that is considered hate speech mm. on social media and yeah. get sideways arrested yeah yeah well see on that issue i completely agree with you we like this is a huge uh, advantage of the american constitution that i'm such uh that makes to me america such an appealing place is you have enshrined the principle of free speech right in the heart it's the first amendment for a reason it matters really tremendously matters to to your society and on that issue yeah no question about it at all you're absolutely right uh, to pick me up on that jag you know we're much worse off on that side of things um i hope we can win that battle because you know as as i say the more ordinary people start to see this happening the more pushback there is um but on that issue yeah you guys are are doing much better um and uh, i wish we had a first amendment yeah. all right um well it's something that we are i am very grateful for. Uh, and you and your partner talk a lot about gratitude. And you mentioned that in your studio, I think that uh, even though you're not religious, you say a kind of secular grace when you're mm. about to eat, uh, even giving thanks for people who made your life difficult in the past. And of course, objectivism is non-mystical, uh, and atheistic. So I thought that was really intriguing that you um, found a way to incorporate this uh, as a ritual, but uh, also in terms of your focus on gratitude more generally, which is a big theme of ours here at the Atlas Society. We talk about gratitude as an envy to, um, as an antidote to envy and, and to resentment. So how can we help to encourage people uh, to see the personal and social benefits of gratitude. You mm. are naturally positioned to do that because you have this experience of growing up in another country and having um, had relatives and members of your family that lived uh, and suffered deeply under communism. And so that gives you, a, as you say, that second sight where you are, but um just more general thoughts on gratitude and how we can encourage it. Yeah, I think that's a really, I'm so glad you asked me that because I think it's such an important uh, question. And uh, I, this is actually one of those things that I don't think is anything to do with 
my background because I wasn't actually always like this. Uh, I wasn't always grateful for the things that I had. Um, I will confess as well. It's a lot easier to be grateful for what you have when your life is great. Uh, <laughs> I'm and, better, yeah. yeah. So from that perspective, I think that's probably part of it. But uh, so for me right now, the idea of gratitude is I really don't want to, I'm, 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 I'm really blessed in, in terms of what's happening with my life. You know, I, I have a job that I love that allows me to put a roof over my family's heads. Uh, I have a, a five month old. He's about to be six month old baby boy. Uh, you know, I have a meaning. I have purpose. I have enough money to survive. Uh, like what else could a man want? You know, so from that perspective, uh, I just a appreciate that so much. And also, uh, you know, we're building something very special with trigonometry and, and the process is incredible and connecting with hundreds of thousands of people around the world and going on shows like the Joe Rogan experience and meeting people that I look up to and learning from them and being in conversations with all sorts of incredible people who are like super smart and from whom I can learn so much. That was always a huge dream for me is being around people Yes, I, I always like sharing my thoughts and I know that a lot of them respect my thoughts about certain things and my views are looking at things. But also it's like, you know, I went for a friend of mine was in town, Chris Williamson from a YouTube channel, Modern Wisdom, and he was in town on his way to do something amazing in Africa. Uh, and he had like a, an 11 hour lay by in, in London. And I was like, oh, hey, let me come down, grab you. We'll go to the gym. We'll 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 uh, sit in the sauna. We'll have lunch afterwards. And we spent like six or seven hours together where like both of us come away from that conversation massively inspired and enlightened and having learned things and shared things and uh, given each other advice and, and support. Like that's amazing. I don't, I don't want to miss that. So the reason I spend so much time thinking about all these things that I'm grateful for and acknowledge them is, I want to be present and notice that they're happening in the moment and be like, oh, wow, this is incredible. Rather than being like the way I frankly used to be, where it was like, oh, so what's the next thing? What am I doing next? What have I got tomorrow? What's my, you know, um, that I think being present naturally is helpful anyway, mm -hmm. uh, even if life is difficult, but particularly when life is going well, it's important to be present. So, it's not something I picked up from going, oh, let's compare myself to my grandparents in, in the gulag. It's something I, you know, I spent a lot of time doing all sorts of personal development because I, I, I've i always been interested in uh, squeezing the most out of the resources that I've been given. You know, we all get dealt a certain, certain set of cards. I always wanted to make sure that I was making the most of the cards that I was dealt. And gratitude is a part of every major religion. It's also a part of almost every uh you know personal development way of looking at things if you want to make your life better being grateful is going to make it better because one of the things people don't realize and this is where you know the non-mysticism part of of objectivism I, I i actually have issue with or at least i disagree with because i'm quite a mystical person in many ways because i i believe that there are very complicated connections that maybe you can explain logically but we don't have the tools to do that level of analysis yet and so they might as well be mystical in the sense of if you are grateful for the things that you have in life that means you you come across differently to other people that affects how they will treat you whether they will help you whether they will give you useful advice whether they will lift you up or push you down uh, and so 
if you develop a disposition that makes it more likely that other people are attracted to you and want to work with you and want to help you, then more good things will happen in your life, right? Uh, and so uh, even from that sort of mystical, you might call that a slightly mystical way of looking at things, um, but it, it's just experientially true that being grateful uh, is something that makes your life better and it makes it uh more enjoyable you makes you a more enjoyable people per, person, person to be around for the people yeah exactly yeah I, I mean i don't know if i would when i say mystical or supernatural i am talking about something that doesn't exist in reality yeah. and what i think you're talking about is the possibility of connections or uh things that might be unified in ways that we yeah. don't have a way of understanding or measuring. So sure. the um, reason I say that, uh, Jack, sorry to interrupt, is that uh, I, I explained it in a lot of detail, whereas I think in any other normal conversation, if we hadn't brought up the mystical, non-mystical, I would have just said your energy is different and other people respond to your energy. Now, yeah. is your energy something that exists? Uh, I don't know. But <laughs> but I do think there is such a thing as how you are affects how other people are with you. I would think we'd all recognize that. Absolutely. And actually what you're talking about sounds a lot like the particular kind of objectivism that we promote at the Atlas okay. Society, oh, brilliant. Which, is, which is open objectivism. And it is... Uh, very much not just about, hey, this is philosophy and we're going to impose it on you, but um, being open and entrepreneurial and, and interested and tolerant to the way that other people may see things mm. or uh, their their points of view. And just just being open, giving people the benefit of the doubt, um, believing that there there is inherent value to other people. And, uh, and that if you're open and if you're, you are showing up uh, as somebody who's benevolent and bringing something of value to the table, then you are, even in a self-interested way, you're probably going to be somebody who's going to make the connections that are going to be helpful for you along the way. So yeah. well, those are awesome values. <laughs> so we like it. It, it works. Yeah. Uh, all right. A couple of very interesting questions that kind of dovetail a few that I had in the pantry. Um, one of which is something I'm always interested in. We're getting it from Janice on Instagram. You mentioned lockdowns earlier. How was that for you? How did it change your outlook or mental positivity? So you didn't have the opportunity to, hey, we're going to go to Florida. Mm -hmm. So yeah uh well initially lockdown was incredibly good mm -hmm. uh, because as i say i hadn't been spending nearly enough time with my wife and suddenly we had all this free time and we'd go for like walks and spend time together and do stuff and uh it, it was incredible the first lockdown was absolutely fantastic uh for me personally and, you know, but i also think just to interrupt there that given what we just talked about in terms of gratitude mm. that is a really healthy i mean i i think i don't want to whitewash or uh i'm i'm not ready to move on i'm not ready to mm. call an amnesty i think there needs no to i mean either but i i yeah but, i've got other things to say on this believe me and i and i, I want to get to that but that your ability even in a difficult time say hey this is good and find positives and certainly spending time well it was it, it, it was beyond good it was absolutely necessary so uh 
I, as someone who later developed a huge aversion to the subsequent lockdowns, I do. There is a part of me that comedically sort of thinks, you know, what a lockdown every twenty years probably would do a lot of people a lot of good. Just like a couple of months where you're not allowed to go to work, you're not allowed to do everything the way you're used to, and you just are forced to re-examine your life for a couple of months. Like once every twenty years, that actually might not be a bad thing. It's certainly, but you can do your own, I suppose. So, uh, but but beyond that, I thought once we got past the first lockdown. And once it was because, you know, at the beginning, we didn't know what it was. Nobody knew how deadly or not deadly it was going to be. We didn't know how it spread exactly. Uh, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it, if even if we say that that lockdown was a mistake, which I at this point would agree probably was a mistake. Um, it was an understandable mistake, in my opinion. But once you get past that. And you know what this is, and you know how it works, and you know how it transmits, and you know that masks don't really work, and you know all this other stuff that we later learned. We and you know, and when when the vaccine comes out, there's a lot of other things that you're told to believe, which later turn out not to be true. You know, people are forced to take it to protect other people, even though the transmission just the stopping transmission really wasn't strong enough to make that sort of claim at all, right? All of the stuff I thought we went down a very, very dark path very quickly. And towards the end of it, I literally felt, you know, as someone who is grateful and as someone who who had a great job throughout lockdown, you know, once I stopped stand-up, trigonometry happened to take off massively during that time. It became full-time job for us. It was great. You know, I was spending that time with my wife and my friends with whom I do the trigonometry. I had a good time. But by the end of it, I just thought that as a country or as several countries, we were going down such a dark path when it comes to human freedom, the idea of liberty, the idea of bodily autonomy, which I think is, happens to, to be quite important, and all of these other things that I actually thought we were in an emergency. And I think it was only the, the development of the Omicron variant in the UK, which was much milder. And the the rising tensions to do with the restrictions, those two things combined allowed us to step back from the brink. I I think that if COVID had continued to be a, as lethal as it had been prior to that, um, I suspect the government would have certainly in our country would have carried on carried on attempting to uh, continue to you know tighten the screws and and reduce the amount of freedom of choice that you have and what you are and are allowed to do and forcing you to have medical procedures. I mean they were about to fire um, I think seventy or eighty thousand nurses from the National Health Service who didn't want to take the the, the COVID uh, injection uh, and. Uh, this is at a time when the, the, the healthcare system is breaking apart because we don't have enough staff and they were prepared to fire tens of thousands of nurses, doctors, and they did fire social workers or, so, or carers in this country who, again, of whom there's a massive shortage, just to force everybody to take a vaccination that doesn't protect anyone except the person who's taking it. To say nothing of the fact that there were by this point millions and millions and millions of people who had natural immunity who did not need to be uh, vaccinated at all. So um, initially brilliant. Afterwards, I thought it's as close as we've come to a very, very dark place in, in our society in the time that I've been alive.
All right, uh, two questions um, on su subjects I want to make sure that we get to. Uh, one is from My Modern Galt on Instagram. Thoughts on Brexit two years later? Uh, well, it's six years later since Brexit, isn't it? Uh, it, was, it happened in yeah. 2022. Uh, but um, I voted to stay in the EU. Uh, and uh, I, I was perfectly fine with that position. We don't know how that would have gone exactly. Might have been better, might have been worse. Uh, what I was horrified about is people who voted differently to me, uh, who happened to be a small majority at the time, were immediately treated as if they were some sort of second-class citizens because they happened to express a different opinion politically to mine. I always argued from the beginning that we had a vote and we have to accept the results of that vote and and proceed accordingly. Uh, but it turned out that there were millions of people in this country who uh, who simply refused to lose. Uh, the, the, they 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 had sour grapes and they wanted to continue to uh, express their frustrations about losing in such a way that I thought was disgusting. I thought it was outrageous uh, uh, the way that they tried to attack people who simply had a different political view as being motivated by the most evil things and you know in in human society. Uh, it, it was just uh, outrageous. But in terms of my own opinion, uh, I, Brexit hasn't been a massive success. I also think it hasn't been a clean experiment because uh, we've had the COVID lockdowns, uh, the war in Ukraine, and all of these other things that obviously have a massive impact on how things are going um so i i think it's very hard to judge it's probably it's, it's like i think it was one of the chinese uh leaders was once asked what was his view of the french revolution and he said it's too soon to tell um with brexit it's definitely too soon to tell Interesting. Uh, we, yeah i think it's very early days and how that issue is actually going to play out and another another uh basket of questions we're getting on Ukraine and Russia, particularly you have family uh, in both. And um, so I think you had said at one point that the purpose of what Russia was doing in the Ukraine was to throw the West off its pedestal. Uh, is that correct? And, and what what did you mean by that? Well, I did say that, but actually there is one other person who said it much better than me, and that's Vladimir Putin, uh, in almost every speech he's given since the, before the invasion and afterwards. Uh, I've translated his last two speeches for my Substack, uh, and you can see from the horse's mouth. In his last speech that he gave uh, he, uh, at the Valdai Discussion Club, which is essentially uh, like Russia's uh, Davos, it's the Russian equivalent of Davos. They get delegates from all over the world. Uh, and um, he was pitching to them essentially a new world order, in which he calls a multipolar world, uh, in which the United States and its allies are not in the position that they're currently in, uh, and that lots of other countries uh, now decide in a sort of what he called democracy. I'm using quotation marks uh, uh, for everybody listening. Uh, you know, he, he he was offering them a democratic global order, as, as he put it. But uh, yeah, in, in, he he one of the things he said in that speech is that the UN Security Council uh, needs to be changed uh, to reflect the fact the you know or this new arrangement if you like so he's deliberately attempting to weaken the west um he's 
his entire approach to Ukraine is irredentist. Uh, and the what he wants is people go, well, Vladimir Putin is not a communist. He's not trying to rebuild the USSR. Uh, and I agree, he's not. He's actually trying to rebuild the Russian Empire. Uh, he's very critical of, of Vladimir Lenin, for example, and uh, uh, other revolutionaries who broke up the Russian Empire and created the USSR because a lot of land was lost. Uh, in the collapse of the Russian Empire, uh, he would like it to be taken back. Uh, this is why he is very critical of uh, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, because he uh, trans tra uh, transferred Ukraine, uh, the Crimea, to uh, the U the Ukrainian SSSR, uh, and um, that's basically his entire game. So he 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 wants to rebuild. Uh, the Russian Empire. He wants a new world order in which America is no, no longer calling the shots. And the amazing thing to me is people are always asking me this question. I, I'm not saying you did in this way, but they're like, you're saying this super controversial thing. I'm like, no, guys, it's what Vladimir Putin's saying. Maybe maybe we should listen to the guys doing it. Is that is that controversial? Is that, <laughs> is, that is that outrageous here? Am I being weird here that I'm saying maybe we should listen to the guy who's doing the invading to find out why he's invading? And we put that link uh, in the comment sections of the platform, so people should should go and um, check that out. And also, uh, if you haven't already, though, it looks like uh, unsurprisingly we have quite a few fans of trigonometry already in the audience. Um, but I'm curious, how did that podcast start for you? And have you and Francis been friends a long time and just decide, decided to pull this together? What was the origin story of of trigonometry? Well, we were two stand-ups on the comedy circuit and I became a regular performer at a comedy club that Francis used to run, help run. Um, and uh, so I was there a lot. We, we talked. I think it became very clear that we were both uh not on board with a lot of the things that were happening in our industry uh because some of the cultural changes you and i've talked about in the course of this conversation uh, were happening in comedy earlier faster harder at a more expanded rate in in every way uh, and it was becoming very apparent that the culture was you know going in this direction um so it became quite clear that neither of us was particularly on board and i was looking around at the time you've got to remember you know starting a podcast in 2020 everyone's like oh another podcast but back then there was a lot fewer particularly youtube shows and certainly there were basically none in the uk at that time now there's quite a few um doing what we do uh and uh you know i've been watching people like uh, joe rogan and um Dave Rubin was having some interesting conversations at that time because he was in that kind of, you know, I'm a liberal and I kind of don't really get what's going on. And he was sort of in that place, which I found very interesting uh, because I always find that much more interesting than people who have like a very clear political, you know, grouping. Yeah, I, I find that less appealing. Uh, but at that point, that's what he was doing. And I found that fascinating. And Joe Rogan's always been having these conversations. And there were a few other people uh, doing it. And uh, I, I really wanted to do it. But that, that's that's what interested me. Uh, and uh, I thought that Francis would be a good pairing be for me because I can sometimes disappear quite far into the overly intellectual side of things. And he's gonna, always going to be there to ask the question that actually most people want to hear the answer to. 
you know and so there's a bit of intellectual stuff and then there's a bit more uh grounded stuff and then layer a bit of comedy into it uh and then i i thought we could we could do something good uh so you know i suggested it and francis uh had he actually had uh he, he i think our relationship with him is a rebound relationship you might say because he'd just been uh doing a podcast with somebody else and uh it was it was very good it was a pure comedy podcast but it didn't work out between the two guys doing it so i came along and i was like hey do you want to do this and i think he was keen to do something uh but he was also a bit raw from his mm -hmm. previous experience but eventually we we, we found a, a way to make it work and uh, the rest is history yeah well i guess sometimes rebound relationships do work so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we're coming up to the top of the hour i want to put uh the cover of constantine's book up again and uh, i again highly recommend the audible version especially now that we understand the sacrifices that he went through to write <laughs> that for us. Uh, so any closing thoughts or new projects on the horizon for you? Yeah, well, there are always new projects. Uh, I'm someone who doesn't believe in uh, saying things until I'm ready to sort of commit to them uh, mm. with my word. Uh, but there are, I'm always working on new stuff and I've got some very cool, exciting things that I'll be doing it over the next few years. Uh, so the, yeah, there's plenty more to come. Uh, but in terms of closing thoughts, no, I just, uh, I, I wanted to, to say how much I appreciate you having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I think, uh, you know, there is so much uh, fighting and anger and destruction and of each other's uh, opinions happening on the internet like you and i've had this conversation the truth is i have absolutely no idea whether you've agreed with most of what i've said or not and you, most of that's... it i'd say i'd say uh 85 but but even if it was 10 percent, it doesn't really matter because we had a good conversation so what does it matter whether you and i agreed on everything of course uh, you know 15 percent is is a small amount to disagree with me on you know five years from now i'll probably disagree with 60 percent of what i've said mm -hmm. today but um you know, I just think the space to have discussions without necessarily feeling like there has to be agreement or disagreement where we can just have a conversation. I think it's a it's a wonderful and rare thing. And I really appreciate you uh, creating that space for us to talk today. And it's uh, good practice because Thanksgiving is coming up and I'm the <laughs> only Republican in my family. So right. um, practicing a bit of uh, open objectivism, as our founder said, if we are wrong then we have something to learn and if we are right then we have nothing to fear so mm. that's why it is good to be open to talking with people it is not a sanction uh to just hear somebody else's point of view and uh in return have the opportunity to share yours so constantine thank you very much for joining us we really appreciate it and thank you so much for the work that you do thank you jag appreciate it thank you and thanks all of you who joined us. Thank you for the excellent questions that you submitted. You make my job easier. If you enjoy the work of the Atlas Society, again, we are a nonprofit. So please consider uh, making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And join us next week. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Grover Norquist. Uh, as you may recall, he was a guest uh, in maybe the first week of uh, these webinars that we started back during the lockdowns, dear friend of mine. 
founder of Americans for Tax Reform, and we're going to be doing a reassess uh, review of the elections and looking at what comes next. So thanks, everybody.